So what is the limbic system? The limbic system is considered the emotional part of the brain. This is where the emotions reside. And it's actually composed by different areas. And it's not only one part of the brain. It is uh, uh, composed by all these areas called the cingulate gyrus, the amygdala, hippocampus, the septal nuclei, and anterior insula. Hypothalamus and thalamus are also part of the system. And we can see it here in this graph, all these parts, cingulate gyrus, that's part of the cerebral uh, cortex. And all these parts are inside in a very central gray matter, gray matter areas in the brain. And it's actually really complex, the function of, the, uh, of this system. It involves connections with areas like thalamus and hypothalamus, which we can tell the function, for instance, of the thalamus is to receive all sensations from the body. The thalamus is the place where we get all the input from receptors, uh, nerves, everything, all the stimulus, sensations get into the thalamus. And from here, it connects to the limbic system. Hypothalamus is the place where we control automatic functions, autonomic nervous system, like the function of the intestines, uh, the heart, regulation. And so all these are connected to this system of emotions that also has connections with the frontal, frontal lobe of the brain. So that's what it makes it complex. For instance, that's the reason why we associate emotions with sensations. When we feel pain, let's say you touch something that makes you, hurts you, and then you associate quickly with previous experiences, and you start to cry or get depressed because of that. And that involves all these structures that work in a, uh, in a coordinated way, evoking different type of responses. There are different experiments and studies that show that if someone has damage in one of these parts, maybe related with a lack of emotion of some, some, some type, or the exacerbation of some type of emotion. Like people with excessive anger, may, or completely unjustified anger, maybe because they have a problem in some part of the circuit. And uh, maybe a tumor of the temporal lobe that is associated with some parts of the amygdala, for instance, which is a component of the limbic system. A long time ago when this was uh, um, described, it, it used to have a name. Part of, them, uh, of this limbic system was called Papes uh, circuit. But we're talking about this connection of some of these parts, like the fornix with the hippocampus, mammillary bodies of the hypothalamus and also the thalamus. And this, was, this used to be called the uh, Papes circuit, but it's just some part, this part right here, fornix, hippocampus, and connections with the thalamus and hypothalamus <coughs> here. This used to be called the circuit of Papes, but it's part of the limbic system. And here are some examples of what are the motions that are related with these areas? For instance, the amygdala and the hypothalamus, they are related with reactions of aggression. So we can see people with problems in the amygdala, like damage or, 
or two more there, they may show this excessiveness, excessive uh, aggressiveness. And uh, that is something that is seen in people with brain tumors. Sometimes they change behavior. All of a sudden, there's a change in behavior and may be related with, uh, with some of these areas. It's also uh, amygdala and hypothalamus are placed where other places where the fear uh, is aris uh, uh, arises from. Hunger and satiety have to do more with the hypothalamus because these are the hypothalamus is the place where we control all these vital functions, survival functions. Sex drive, the whole system is involved with that. And behaviors like goal-directed behaviors that involve hypothalamus also, but in here other regions are connected like the single gyrus uh, and frontal lobe because it involves um, behaviors that have a goal, a specific uh, purpose. So that's why this is called the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain. But again, it works in connection with the rest of the, of the brain, like the cerebral cortex. And at some point, it starts getting complex because if there are connections with the cerebral cortex, there's a point at which, in theory, we could, in a way, control our emotions. But it uh, sounds so uh, too simple. It's more complex than that. Actually, the emotions are things that help us and drive our behavior and uh, direct our behaviors for survival, for instance. This is a very important thing. Also, the memory, it is related with some of these areas, like the hippocampus, the temporal lobe. These are places where the amygdala is and parts of the limbic system are. And um, prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex uh, is related with problem solving. In general, the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe of the brain is related with very complex um, uh, processes that lead to problem solving in uh, places where we um, evoke experiences or memories like short-term memory and the frontal lobe and the inferior part of the frontal lobe apparently there are neurons that help with mathematical calculations so all these things came up after these studies were actually, they uh, combine different uh, methods like functionals, MRIs, where they see exactly what parts of the brain are activated when people are doing this type of thoughts or mental processes, and they are able to map exactly where the thing, where the neurons related with these functions are, are working. Memory is a very complex thing also, and it has, um, uh, it is related with some areas, as mentioned, like the hippocampus, which seems to be the critical part, the critical component for the memory. Uh, memories are not things like proteins or neurotransmitters that are stored in some places. There are actually processes, connections between many neurons. But in this case, the hippocampus seems to be the, the place that is very critical for this. This is uh, the area that helps us to get new information and consolidate memories. The process of consolidation is 
the process by which we keep memories for a long time. Short-term memory turns into long-term memory. And the long-term memory <coughs> seems to be, in, in a way, stored in the temporal lobe. And I say stored, not in the sense of, like I was saying, a neurotransmitter or chemicals are stored there, just like that. But instead, neurons that have connections and established uh, processes to store these type of, um, of memories. Now, short-term memory, long-term memory are classifications of this process called memory, which, as I said, is complex, but it can be described and classified so we can understand exactly what they mean. Like, and this is important in the study of problems, like <coughs> someone has a two more processes in these areas of the temporal lobe, or someone has Alzheimer's disease. Um, we use all these definitions. Short-term memory is defined as the memory of recent events. And as, as I said, during the process of consolidation, some of these memories are stored for a long time and turn into what we call long-term memory. Short-term memory are things like recent events, including things that happened in the previous minutes of the present. And, but the short-term memory can even be classified uh, finer, like there's something we call immediate memory. Immediate memory, short-term memory. What is immediate memory? Remember, immediate memory is the one that, that we have when we learn or hear like a new phone number and you dial it quickly. Like I tell you, dial this number and you dial it. If we are paying attention, we don't want the number to be repeated because we have this immediate memory. We are able to dial the number without any problem. Now, if you're not paying attention or are distracted, of course, I'll tell you the number and you will forget. You need repetition. But that's what we call immediate memory. Short-term memory is something that happened like, ask yourselves if you are able to remember all the questions from the quizzes. <laughs> See, that's short-term memory. You probably remember one or two. You have to make the effort to remember. But now, who can remember the questions for this quiz two weeks from now? because they were purged, those memories were purged from your brain. But we probably will remember if you got a zero today. <laughs> and that turns into long-term memory. Now why? Because you didn't like it. It impacted on you. It was related with the limbic system. So that event has an impact on you and evoke processes that connect your limbic system, emotions. And the emotions are useful to consolidate some memories. And going further, most of us will remember things that happened in our childhood, which can be happy or very sad memories. We remember them. But we don't remember the fine things like, what, what, what type of cake did you get for your birthday number six? 
They'll remember those things. Um, so that process is called consolidation. You, your short-term memories turn into long-term memories. And that process happens in the temporal lobe again. Hippocampus and amygdala. And see, these same things, the same parts are related with behaviors like fear, uh, aggression, anger. And that's why things that have an impact on us are things that we usually consolidate. And most of these processes happen during sleep. Sleep is good for that reason, because we consolidate our memories when we are sleeping. And that's when you're sleeping and we dream. Sometimes we think, or we have like a review of things that happen during the day. Or sometimes things, uh, we dream about things that, uh, things or events that we would like to happen, but they didn't happen. Because that, that's our memory working, trying to consolidate some things and trying to purge some other things. Now, long-term memory seems to, be, seems to be related with production of new proteins and formation of new synapses, especially. And the long-term memory, and that's the reason why sleep is important, because for this to happen, the neurons have to be in a good metabolic uh, uh, condition and during sleep, deep sleep, if you remember we talked about that, that's a point where the neurons recover. The neurons uh, recover from the, not damage, but uh, active uh, metabolic rate that they had during uh, the wakefulness uh, condition. And long-term memories can also be classified into different types, declarative and non-declarative. Non-declarative is simple skills, how to do things, also known as implicit. And declarative are explicit, meaning that things that can be verbalized. And even more, this declarative can be separated into semantic and episodic facts and events. When we ask people and tell them to explain things that happen or things that they learn from this experience, they sometimes remember the fact, but they don't remember, they're not able to explain it very well. Or what they meant for, especially for that person. The non-declarative art simple skills, how to do things, these are things that are not conscious completely, like, uh, we remember what is the routine that we have every day, and we do it. We wake up, and we go to brush our teeth and uh, do things that are routine things, but we know how to do them. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to make the effort to recall every single step. Uh, these are the non-declarative. And all this classification is important, especially when we study problems like Alzheimer's disease. As you know, Alzheimer's is a problem of uh, uh, degeneration of the of some parts of the brain and the main problem is loss of memory but if we know that the memory is actually really complex then we can start understanding how this thing happens uh, Alzheimer is considered dementia dementia is a term that we use for um, alteration of uh, cerebral functions that are complex, like 
memory, judgment, um, uh, thought processes. And the dementias may be of different types. Alzheimer's is one of them that have to do with the loss of memory. There's a type of dementia which is called uh, atherosclerotic that has to do with chronic high blood pressure with uh, problems of different parts of the brain. Uh, there's a senile dementia that have to do with aging process in some people. But this type has to do with Alzheimer's disease. What happens, cholinergic fibers are lost in the hippocampus and the cerebral cortex. That's why memory is affected. Memory and connections with the cerebral cortex. There's accumulation of proteins outside the neurons. We can see them under the microscope. They are called senile plaques. And other type of proteins inside the neurons. And that's why it damages the neurons and neurons die every day. But again, if we make studies uh, getting pieces or samples of brain of people that died with this disease, we can see all these uh, deposits of some proteins called senile plaques. There is a, a loss of synapses, and there's not actually a good explanation why this happens and what is actually the process that leads to Alzheimer's disease. Instead, we see the things, the problems, like plaques, outside the neurons and inside the neurons. Uh, there are different theories that have to do with the uh, uh, free radicals causing excessive damage, oxidative stress that lead to apoptosis of the neurons, of the neurons in a way to, they program their own death because of this, all these alterations. The main things in Alzheimer's is the loss of memory. That starts with the loss of short-term memory, which becomes more frequent. But then afterwards, it continues with the long-term memory. And then with the declarative memory, and finally with the non-declarative memory. But in the very final stages of Alzheimer's, people forget how they comb their hair. They forget how to dress up. They forget how to brush their teeth. And the process goes progressively and uh, going uh, worse every day. Yeah. So the plaques, are they like deposits of like uh, heavy metals, something like that? Or? No, they're proteins. They're proteins, yeah. They're called neurofibril tangles because they look like fibrous proteins inside and outside the neurons. What? Stress something that can induce that? No, stress doesn't induce Alzheimer, but affects the memory. Stress, anxiety, depression. Short-term memory in particular? Yes, short-term short memory. Short-term memory. And that's very common. I mean, everyone probably had this before. I mean, when you are uh, worried about something and you, are, you have your mind thinking too much, you are walking at home and you are, let's say, in the bedroom, you go to the kitchen to get something or to the living room. When you get there, you forgot what you were doing there. And so what I came for here, I came for, I don't remember. And you have to go back to your bedroom and oh yeah, and go back again and say, what am, oh, wait, I forgot. And say, that's short-term memory. But that doesn't mean you have outside. Or you go to buy to the store, the, uh, the corner, the grocery store, and you remember your way back home. That's 
simple. But if you start having those episodes of loss of short-term memory like uh, 10 times a day, of course, that is not, that's not stress or depression. And the stress or depression can cause you one or two episodes. And you know that you're having problems and so on. But if you're okay, nothing is going bad in your life, and you have to start having those very frequent loss of short-term memory, and it won't go away after some time, and, and it's, instead it's getting worse, then the thing is uh, worried. You have to get assessed for that. And uh, as I said, in the final stages of Alzheimer's, things get really worse, and uh, people forget very basic things, and they forget, I mean, they don't have memories of their loved ones. They don't recognize you, and, uh, and even uh, at the end, they don't recognize themselves at, at times. So it's a very, very um, complex problem. Emotions and memories are very related. We've been saying that uh, emotions strengthen memory, but also weaken the memory. The amygdala is related with this. It has connections to the limbic system and also is part of the memory uh, formation. Stress, post-traumatic stress disorder can cause a problem in the hippocampus. And actually that's a place that where uh, uh, neurologists study and people, some people with post-stress traumatic disorder, I mean post-traumatic stress disorder. And memories are there. In some cases, it's not actually a, a loss of memory, but it's actually a problem to re recall memories. There's memories are there. It's just like stress, anxiety, are not letting this process flow normally. And there's a different series of treatments for um, therapies that can help with this. Questions, comments about that point? Very interesting part of this of the emotional part and memories and other region of the brain is called the diencephalon. And the diencephalon is a part of the forebrain that includes three regions: epithalamus, thalamus, and hypothalamus. Thalamus is the central part. Then we have a region underneath, which is called hypothalamus. Thalamus is here in the central part. Hypothalamus is this triangular area underneath. And epithalamus is this little area right here. To see the thalamus and all these regions, we have to make a sagittal section of the brain. Otherwise, we won't be able to, to see it. Hypothalamus. It is connected to a very important gland of the endocrine system, the pituitary gland. And all the diencephalon it is also related with the third ventricle, which is one of the cavities inside the brain. To both sides, we find the cerebral hemispheres. Gray matter. It is made of gray matter, meaning that there's a lot of neurons here that control different functions. Like starting with the thalamus. Thalamus is the place where all sensory information gets. It's like a relay center, meaning that everything gets there and from the thalamus 
these connections are sent in different places of the brain. But there's one exception, smell sense, olfactory sense, won't go through the thalamus. It will go straight to the frontal cortex, parts of the frontal cortex and, and temporal cortex. It will bypass the thalamus. And in the thalamus, there's also a place, and nuclei, groups of neurons there, that are related with the state of arousal from sleep and alertness, the state of wakefulness. Epithalamus, it is related with another gland called pineal gland, which is going to make and produce this hormone called melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone that regulates circadian rhythms. Circadian rhythms are um, it's a cycle that manages the way that many hormones are released, many things, many parts of the metabolism work. Like, it's very well known that, that we perform better in the morning, and then in the afternoon we get kind of tired and we don't think very well. That has to do with circadian rhythm, meaning that more hormones are released in the morning, the metabolism is more active in the morning, and then in the afternoon it goes down. Cortisol is one of these hormones. If we measure during the day, we have different levels at different times of the day, and that has to do with this. And the pineal gland seems to control this, secreting melatonin, which is a very small part in the uh, upper and posterior part of the thalamus. Does that have anything to do with the sleeping Yeah, because circadian rhythms have to do with the cycle day and night. Melatonin is secreted more during nighttime. Mm -hmm. It's actually the hormone that tells you that it's time to go to bed. Like 10, 11 p.m., you feel kind of relaxed and you're like, it's time to go to bed because melatonin is being secreted by the pineal gland. Melatonin is available now in commercial preparations. You can take a pill of melatonin and feel that same sensation. It actually helps to sleep. It's not, uh, it doesn't get addictive sometimes like the other sleep, sleeping pills that are sedatives, but uh, it helps to relax some people. So at night it just makes you not Sorry. Hmm? So if you at nighttime, hmm. um, what makes you tired is that it just doesn't secrete as many hormones in the body. You secrete melatonin, and the melatonin is ordering everything to slow down. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting to see this in people that work night shifts. Because when you are night shift, usually you change everything in your life. It's all the cycle, meaning that you're, you have to be awake during the time that you're supposed to be sleeping. Like you have a night shift from uh, 9, 8, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, let's say. You have to be working at that time. And then 6 a.m. in the morning, you go home to sleep or rest, which is practically impossible because unless you are 
a well-designed dark room with no noises around, then you'll be able to sleep. Otherwise, I mean, you have the daylight and you have many stimuli coming and it's very hard. So that means that your cycle, your circadian rhythm changes. And another thing that happens in people that work night shift is usually people gain weight. And so after two or three weeks, start gaining weight. Well, I'm gaining weight. Well, you work at night and you have breaks, and at the break, what do you do? You get some coffee, you get some pastries, donuts, whatever. You eat. You eat at times when you're supposed to be sleeping. And then during the day, you have your normal meals. So you have an increase of calories there. Besides, your system is supposed to be slower during the night. Now, after a week that you start working night shifts, then your body says, hey, this guy is working and is eating during the nighttime. So the circadian rhythm changes. And you, your met met metabolism starts getting different. Yeah? You get older when you not work night shift. Yeah. You get tired. <laughs> that's why I look very old. <laughs> that, that, no, that's true. That's true. That's true. And some people you you see that a lot because it doesn't have to do with um, with the metabolism and that difference in metabolism, but instead have more to do with um, the lack of sleep and the sleep deprivation that you have chronic sleep deprivation, which you never recovered. It's not like you owe money and then you get money and you pay the debt. I mean, you could pay the debt of sleep to a certain point, but you cannot pay it at all. That will have an impact on you, long term. Like, I, I worked night shift for a long time, and um, what I used to do is, well, you work all night and then the next day you go and sleep, and the weekend sometimes you say, okay, this weekend I'm gonna sleep, because I, I didn't sleep the during the week. But you never get to sleep the same number of hours. You never get to sleep in the same way. And so, when you're supposed, and your body's supposed to be recovered, not only your neurons, but the cells of your whole body, supposed to recover, they don't recover. And little by little, let's say in 10 years, you will see the difference. You'll see the difference in people that work night shift for a long time. They look kind of older. It's not actually something that is dramatic in some other people. It depends on every person and the genetics of everyone. And yeah, that, that's interesting. Another thing is, people that work night shift, they tend to get sick more frequently than others because of the immune system. The immune system also gets very depleted. So, and sometimes we have to work night shift. It's not the choice. But it's supposed not to, uh, not to last for too long. I mean, uh, supposed to switch or try to look for a different option. At times it is necessary, but it's not supposed to be long, long time. I mean, you cannot do, be doing that for 10 years, let's say. That will really have an impact on your, on your life, and it's not, we can say it's not healthy. But sometimes it's necessary to do it, but it's not supposed to be uh, a long time thing. Okay, so hypothalamus, hypothalamus, which is part of the diencephalon, is related with the pituitary gland, and this relation is very important. The pituitary gland, we'll study that in the endocrine system, 
pituitary gland has to uh, uh, control other glands in our body that control very important functions from growth, reproduction, metabolism, and there has to be a connection with the hypothalamus, the central nervous system. Hypothalamus, it's very important to keep the homeostasis. At some point, remember at the very beginning, we talk about homeostasis, we gave an example of thirst and dehydration, and we mentioned the hypothalamus having those osmoreceptors that detect the amount of uh, solutes that we have in our body fluids. But other functions are placed here, like hunger, thirst, regulation of body temperature, sleep and wakefulness is also controlled here in the hypothalamus, emotions because it is related with the limbic system, and control of the endocrine system through the pituitary gland. Hypothalamus is very complex. Uh, thalamus um, and hypothalamus, specifically in the hypothalamus, there are many nuclei, many neurons that are divided by different regions. Like this is just an example, like the lateral region, medial region, preoptic anterior, they have different functions as you see, hunger, satiety, the preoptic anterior, shivering, hyperventilation, vasodilation, supraoptic, and paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus, they secrete hormones. We're going to mention these two again when we get to the endocrine system. The production of antidiuretic hormone and oxytocin hormone with the supraoptic and paraventricular. These two hormones are made in the hypothalamus, as we see in this diagram. Supraoptic nucleus, we have neurons there, and paraventricular nucleus. They have uh, very long axons that go down towards the pituitary gland. This is the pituitary gland right here. And these axons release a hormone to the blood vessels around the pituitary gland. Now, these two hormones are ADH and oxytocin. ADH for antidiuretic hormone, which controls the uh, water homeostasis. And oxytocin is a hormone that controls uterine contractions during childbirth. And the hypothalamus also makes a list of hormones which are called releasing hormones and inhibiting hormones. They are going to control the pituitary gland. Hypothalamus controls the pituitary gland uh, using these releasing hormones and inhibiting hormones. We'll get more to detail in this regulation and endocrine system. We'll see that they are like different homeostatic loops that happen between the hypothalamus and, and pituitary gland.
Midbrain and handbrain. Midbrain, also called the mesencephalon, and in the mesencephalon, we can recognize some areas. One part, which is posterior, is called corpora quadrigemina. This uh, term, actually what it means is a body with four prominences. Quadri from four, corpora from body. And these four prominences are two superior, they're called superior colliculae, and inferior colliculae. Groups of neurons that anatomically are seen like four prominences in the posterior aspect of the midbrain. The two upper or superior colliculae have to do with visual reflexes. So these neurons receive connection from the eyes. Visual reflexes, like one of them we saw uh, last week, the pupillary reflex, when you get the light and light one of the eyes and the pupil reacts, well that's a reflex. And that is a loop that has a connection here in the corpora quadrigemina superior colliculum of the midbrain. And the other reflex that you did last time, called the consensual reflex, is that you light one of the eyes, let's say the right eye, and the left eye, the left pupil, will dilate without a need to be straight, straight lighted. It contracts and dilates as a reaction. And that means that there's a connection on both sides, and that happens again in the uh, superior colliculi of the midbrain or mesencephalus. Anteriorly, we have these structures called cerebral peduncles. The term peduncle comes from uh, uh, the feet. It looks like two feet or two projections that contain tracts, meaning bundles of axons, white matter. White matter that connects cerebral cortex with cerebellum spinal cord. And in the midbrain, we have a group of nucleus, a group of neurons called the red nucleus, which connects the cerebrum and cerebellum for motor coordination. When we make a movement, it's not, it's, it's a goal-directed movement, and it has different stages. Well, those movements are coordinated by the cerebellum, and connections come from the cerebral cortex down to the red nucleus and then to the cerebellum. So the movements can be well programmed and coordinated. And here we have a transverse section of the midbrain or mesencephalon, where we can see the colliculi, these are the superior colliculi, which is posterior, this part is anterior, uh, posterior and this is anterior. We see the red nucleus. It's not that red, but it looks like kind of red, pink. And something else, cerebral peduncles, which are these two projections that contain axons connecting to the cerebral cortex. And 
the substantia nigra, which is a dark area in the midbrain. And it's dark because it contains a neurotransmitter dopamine. Levodopa, it's uh, the precursor, and it gives that color. And we mentioned this as a responsible of Parkinson's disease whenever these neurons are damaged. They lose a neurotransmitter, and uh, this is the, the cause of the Parkinson's disease. Here we have more about this important part of the midbrain called the substantia nigra. Motor circuit has to do with the motor circuit of this system called dopaminergic because it contains the dopamine as the um, neurotransmitter. Negrostriatal system is called this circuit, which can be seen here as the green projections, the negrostriatal from the midbrain to some parts of the limbic areas. And the ventral tegmental area, it's part of this dopaminergic system, but it's a, a more connected with parts of the limbic system or mesolimbic connections of neurons to the limbic system. Limbic system and nucleus accumbens, which is located in the frontal, in the frontal lobe. Now these areas are involved with the behavioral reward system and it's been implicated in addictions and psychiatric disturbances. How this works? Well, these connections from the mesencephalon and more the mesolimbic, this part connects the mesencephalon to some parts of the frontal uh, lobe and the limbic system, they are controlled by dopamine, this neurotransmitter. And um, in some addictions, in general, most of the addictions have been studied and related with this system. It seems to be an overstimulation of this system. And the overstimulation of this system, since it has to do with the behavioral reward system, um, if the stimulation stops, then the body starts to crave for that. And who controls that? Well, that's controlled there in the, the thalamus. Thalamus, mesolimbic system, or limbic system. And that's how the addiction leads to this type of behaviors that uh, uh, to get more in order to keep the level of dopamine all the time. And studies have been made in this sense, people with addictions seems to have, seem to have chronic alteration of these areas that uh, in terms of uh, size of some parts of the cerebral cortex, they found differences in the circumvolutions of the brain. Although they don't have an impact on superior functions like the, uh, uh, thought processes and this type of thing, but um, it is obvious that there's a difference. They're and also, I'm sorry? They are born with that? No, they are not born with that. It seems to, uh, that, that it can change a long time because of the overstimulation and the 
reinforcement of these connections. I'm talking about addictions of many, many years that can change the structure of the brain. Hand brain containing two parts, rhombencephalon, metencephalon, and these parts include the cerebellum, pons, and medulla oblongata, and the beginning of the spinal cord right here. All this hand brain is shown in blue in this area, the midbrain in orange. So the hand brain. Find the metencephalon first that contains the pons and cerebellum. What is the function of these areas? The pons, which means bridge, is actually a bridge between the cerebral cortex, midbrain, and cerebellum. It contains tracts, which as I said means bundles of axons sensory and motor tracts, so axons that carry sensory information and motor information uh, that are going, going up and down the spinal cord. There are neurons here that are the origin for some nerves called the cranial nerves. Cranial nerves are described with a name and a Roman numeral. We have 12 cranial brains, and uh, some of these arise from the pons, like the cranial nerve number five, which is called trigeminal, cranial nerve number six, number seven, and number eight. And they're, all of them arise from neurons in the pons. What are these cranial nerves for? They usually control functions of the head, like senses, like the vestibular cochlear, eighth cranial nerve for hearing. Trigeminal, facial, are sensory and motor. So we move the muscles of our face because of the facial nerve, for instance. So the cranial nerves, five, six, seven, eight, they arise from the pons. And besides, there are neurons that control the respiration the respiratory function. Neurons that are described as control centers. There's one group of neurons called the amnustic center and the pneumotaxic center. They control the rate and rhythm of respiration. And fibers that connect to the cerebellum. That's what the pons does. There's a group of neurons which are the origin for cranial nerves but also is a place where tracks are running up and down the spinal cord and going to the cerebellum. And the cerebellum. The cerebellum, which means small brain, a small cerebrum, it is posterior in the posterior cranial fossa, and this cerebellum receives input from proprioceptors, which are receptors that we have in joints, tendons, muscles, 
And we call them proprioceptors because they detect our position. They detect muscular tone. They detect if we are standing, seated, laying down. And the cerebellum works with, uh, in coordination with basal nuclei, which are the neurons in the very central part of the cerebrum, to coordinate movements. Whenever we make a movement, we keep the equilibrium. We can dance and keep standing because all the receptors are sending information to the cerebellum and the cerebellum is coordinated with the basal nuclei which connects to the cerebral cortex. And we have that circuit described here. See how the cerebellum is sending connections to the thalamus and basal nuclei, red nucleus also, and then connects to the cerebral cortex. And from the cerebral cortex, it comes the order straight down the spinal cord, but it is regulated. Every control, every movement we make is well controlled, is well uh, fine adjusted, so we can keep the equilibrium. And that's the job of the cerebellum. Very important for moral learning, so all the movements that we make, fine skills, uh, moral skills, the cerebellum is implicated with that. And the myelencephalon is made up mainly by the medulla oblongata. Medulla oblongata is another group, another group of, um, I mean, another part of the brain stem, which contains tracts also, ascending and descending. So the tracts are coming from cerebral cortex, come down the midbrain, pounds, now they get to the medulla and keep going down, keep going down to the spinal cord. Posteriorly, and this is a posterior view. We can see two prominences, two bulging areas called the pyramids. In this picture we can see the pyramids here and here. And this is something that we can easily see when we see this in a, a brain model or a, a, a specimen. We can see these prominences in the posterior aspect of the medulla oblongata. Up here we can recognize the pons. And there are some cranial nerves also related with the medulla oblongata. Number seven, I mean number eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12, all these cranial nerves are arising from the medulla oblongata. And it's also related with the respiratory function, the respiratory control of, uh, of the respiratory function. Neurons that control the respiration, regulation of breathing, and cardiovascular response. Like this is the place where neurons control the heart rate and the state of contraction and dilation of the blood vessels.
And those structures called the pyramids, what they contain are axons. Axons that are coming from the cerebral cortex, and we'll call them later the pyramidal tracts, because there are motor axons. They are coming from neurons in the cerebral cortex and going down the spinal cord, and they, when they go through the medulla, we can see them like two prominences in the posterior aspect. This is a representation of the pyramidal tracts. The pyramidal tracts, all these uh, red radiations that are coming down from the cerebral cortex, they come down, go through the midbrain, pons, and when they get to the medulla, they make up these two prominences called the pyramids. And at this point, there is a decusation, meaning crossing over some fibers from the left side will cross to the contralateral side. And in the same way, fibers running in the right side go to the left. Not all of them, part of it. If you see them here, this is divided. Some of them cross and some others continue in the same way. But in that way, they will keep going down to the spinal cord. And that decusation or crossing over explains why when someone has a stroke in the right side of the brain. The left side of the body is affected because most of the fibers are crossing over to the contralateral side. Questions, comments? Let's have a break, 10 minutes.